This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. And today is the 40th anniversary of President Reagan bringing an end to the air traffic controller strike of 1981 by firing 11,000 air traffic controllers. The strike by the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, began on August 3rd in 1981 after negotiations for higher pay and a reduced work week fell through. And Richard, this is a pretty astonishing story. However, it is 40 years old. And I don't know how well it's taught in U.S. history courses in high school or college, for example. So for our listeners, will you take us back to what happened? Well, let me just take you back in the following way. I mean, uh, this takes place right after Reagan is put into office. And, And the most important thing to remember is that the 1980 election was in some sense genuinely transformative on the American side with Ronald Reagan coming into office. Just as in England, the uh, ascension of Margaret Thatcher to the prime ministership in England also indicated a major shift. Before that, essentially what had happened in the United States with respect to labor regulation in general in both countries was that unions had an unquestioned kind of power. And the only issue that you had to do, at least uh, in the public sector, was to figure out how it was that you could appease them. Uh, So what happened in the United States was that uh, the original Taft-Hartley, rather the original Wagner Act as modified by the Taft-Hartley Act, did not cover public employees at all. And this was because Roosevelt, on this issue being somewhat of a conservative, had the view that the entire system of striking doesn't make any sense with respect to a public union uh, because it turns out that you do not have an employer on the side who's prepared to put up some kind of a fight uh, against the workers on the other other side. And what happened was after a while that became changed and more and more people were added into the protections of union. And what it did is it then created a system quite different from that in England, but every bit as deadly, I think, of collective bargaining. So the English system was that there were no contracts whatsoever so that wildcat strikes could take place at any time. And the miners were perhaps the most dramatic illustration because their position where it was, um, if it's in the ground, we could dig it out, cost or whatever it takes to do it. Benefits are utterly irrelevant to the calculation, things will go ruined. In the American side, uh, the way in which this thing started to work is a union says, look, we are the dominant union here. We are the exclusive union here. If you can't um, essentially make an agreement with us that we can go out on strike and with respect to a public service, this is, of course, unthinkable. And so, therefore, what we will do is we will just hold you up uh, to the point where we can get some popular support. Reagan coming into office was a lot younger than, than eight years later when he left, and he decided to call their bluff. And the way in which he did it, he says, okay, this is the terms, and if it doesn't happen, what I'm going to do is throw you guys all out and quit and go and hire a new set of controllers in order to deal with this. It was a completely audacious move because it's not very easy to figure out how it is you're going to cover for these workers. I think they use military personnel or some other people whom they dragooned into the service. Uh, There was always a cue to get into line for these kinds of positions. So they patched together a system, and and by heaven, what it worked. 
And I could remember at the time, myself and several of my friends talking, said, this is a total transformation of the way in which America has looked. For the first time, we had a president who did not blink when there was a public union. And for the first time, the skies did not fall and when that happened. Uh, So there is a permanent transformation about the way in which uh, unions and other kinds of political organizations are going to deal with the state. And so all of a sudden, Ronald Reagan, who is dismissed by many people as this sort of harebrained lunatic, a unworthy successor of a crazy Barry Goldwater, actually had proved that certain kinds of conservative, tough principles had worked. And at this particular point, it kind of changed the entire dynamic by the way in which he was looked at in office, at least for the first term. And what was the consequence of this? Well, it certainly wasn't negative. In uh, 1984, he's running against a perfectly respectable Democratic candidate who has not wounded the way in which Jimmy Carter had been by inflation and lots of other difficulties, uh, Walter Mondale. And I think he won 49 states and almost swept the board. Uh, The only state he didn't carry was Mondale's home state. Uh, So this was essentially a real high watermark. But what you learn in politics, and uh, my initial observations will stop here, is Nixus Bestendel aus der Wechsel was the way it was put to me in German. Nothing is permanent except for change. So the thought that somehow or other you would see Joe Biden or Barack Obama or even Donald Trump uh, attempt the same maneuver if faced with public union seems to be highly remote. It turns out that toughness is a very difficult uh, attribute to retain, and so there's a kind of a slip back to normalcy. There was a nice piece by Walter Mead this morning in the Wall Street Journal saying, we got Reagan to get us out of the 70s. Who's going to get us out of the current morass? And he just could not identify a figure. So it is a great tribute to Reagan, I think, uh, but it is a sign of how difficult it is uh, in these days to retain that particular fighting spirit against public unions and, in this case, private unions in the United States where their power is greater than it's ever been. Just one observation. Uh, The Biden administration decided Amazon needs to have a new election because of quote-unquote coercion. You can see which way the government is moving today. And before we get into talking about private sector unions, I, I do want to ask about the Taft-Hartley Act, which affected public sector unions, federal uh, public sector unions. No, that how Taft-Hartley that, was only private. Only private. Yeah, so, in 47. Uh, so how are public sector unions regulated today uh, differently than, than private sector unions at the federal level? It's a great question, and let me put it to this way. Um, uh, all public unions in the states are essentially governed by something that, like the Taylor Act, which was put into place in New York in 1962-1963. And the precedent for that was indeed a federal action, but it was not a statute. It was an executive order in January of 1962 put into place by John Kennedy. And what he said is, on certain limited topics, I'm prepared to negotiate with unions on the grounds that I I think public workers have the same kind of entitlements as private workers have. So that got the unions inside the uh, door. Then it was imitated by all of these state statutes, many of which have come into challenge more recently. And the basic treatment there is, yes, you're public workers, you're essential workers, some are, some aren't. Uh, And so what happens is the quid pro quo is uh, you can unionize, but you have to agree to arbitration. Uh, You cannot go out on strike. And the theory was that this would take over from the Railway Labor Act, which had been passed in 1926, which said, in effect, that the rails, although not 
publicly owned were so essential uh, that what went on in those particular cases is there could be no strike by the unions, and the quid pro quo was that they had to agree before any kind of change could take place, laying workers off or anything else, and that created a huge blockade which lasted for many, many years. So in that particular case, it was the firemen who kept their jobs for 30 years, even after diesel engines had basically made the entire operation obsolete. Once it came on the state side, uh, the unionization was clearly there, uh, but two things started to happen. One is there were wildcat strikes, but there was no Ronald Reagan to fire everybody. Uh, Governors are a different breed in terms of dealing with these things. And secondly, it turns out that the political processes were such uh, that the unions were instrumental in making sure that their favorite representatives got key cases in government, got elected to public office. Uh, So it was the kind of nightmare that Roosevelt had actually imagined in the 1930s. You had essentially the uh, public unions on both sides of the bargaining table, uh, which created all sorts of difficulties. And it created a lot of problems for minority workers. And so when we had the Janus case a couple of years ago, all of a sudden you see where the dam starts to burst, namely that dissenting public union workers are all of a sudden given a First Amendment right to opt out of that particular system, even though the union still retains a duty to represent them uh, because the pressures got so, so great. It was always a mistake. I'm a Calvin Coolidge man, as you know. And if you remember during the police strike um, in 1919 in Massachusetts, he took the general kind of position and nobody strikes in the public period. And when he had a strike, he also used force um, in order to break it up, in that case by policemen when he was governor. Uh, So this is a long tradition. And what you learn about this is you never create public unions. What you learn about private unions is that the Taft-Hartley Act and the Wagner Act before it are actually a mistake. Mandatory collective bargaining is not an instrument that works. In the private sector, uh, it erodes because many, many firms start to go non-union. The unions can't even deliver to their so-called members. But in the public sector, since there's no entry for a school district and things like that, public unions tend to decline much less rapidly than in the private sector. So today, you've got about 6.1 or 2% of private workers in unions compared to about 35% back in 1954. But on the public side, it's probably down from its peak. Uh, But if it's down from its peak, it's still around 40% instead of 45%. Uh, Scott Walker, when he was governor of Wisconsin, did something as close to what you saw Reagan do today when he basically stonewalled and refused to capitulate to the teachers and other public unions. So it can happen that you can resist them, but you also can get voted out of office because Walker faced huge retribution from union forces. Um, He could not retain his governorship. I think he won once and then lost again. It is an object lesson as to the fact that if you wish to take down a union, you have to be prepared to take yourself down as well. So some quick statistics on the actual strike, because I think it's so fascinating that it started on August 3rd. On August 4th, of the 13,000 air traffic controllers who had gone on strike, only 1,300 came back. And the next day, August 5th, when they didn't come back to work, President Reagan fired them and barred them from all future uh, federal service. Uh, what kind of lessons are we learning from this? Do you think that there are any public sector unions that that could compare to this, that we could ever see something like this? I mean, Richard, is this how we get rid of the TSA? They go on strike and we can actually fire them? And uh, are there any presidents? You honestly don't believe that 
Uh, Look, I mean, Joe Biden is probably a more pro-labor president than was Barack Obama. Uh, And it turns out that the word union and jobs are basically joined at the hip. So every time he starts to talk about a particular program in which he's going to expand, let us say, green values, uh, what he's always going to do is to create more union jobs. So even though there are serious cases in which unions are in opposition to the the president, most notably in connection with pipeline construction, where he is trying to squeeze out as much as he can from pipelines and from fracking and so forth, where the unions are bitterly opposed to him, and in my view, rightly so. Uh, if If he thinks there's an area where he wants to have a major new program, He wants to make sure that it has a built-in union component. That was also true of Barack Obama in 2009 when he wanted to do the various kinds of trade protection. Uh, First section in there was if you could protect protect the collective bargaining uh, by whatever means, then you are duty-bound to do so. So for the Democrats in party, I mean, I think the answer is that collective bargaining is so much a fundamental shrine-like proposition that it's unthinkable. On the Republican side, I think there's deep kind of skepticism. But it takes a very extraordinary kind of Republican to say, what I'm going to do is fundamentally attack the institution. What most Republicans are prepared to do is say, I'll give you half as much as a Democrat will do, which often invites demands which are twice as large as they previously were. And so I do think public unions are to some extent on decline, uh, but I think it's very slow. I think it's capable in some sense of reversal. What really hurts unions in the private sector is you don't have the mass production kinds of industries and the low rates of turn over and the protection of a tariff wall, which makes it possible to organize workers for the long run. Uh, The moment you've got competitive rates in most industries, it turns out that there's no union monopoly that you could extract except under very limited circumstances, so-called quasi-rents. A miner essentially may have a a mine may have a particularly good position and a union could try to get most of that, but that's a small part of the overall a kind of publication. There's international trade on the one hand. People are much more likely to job hop today than they were in, in previous times. Uh, people like to work on a part-time basis. And so if you start to see something like the gig economy, there's a huge Biden initiative to try to unionize these things. But the workers themselves don't want to be part of the unions because they treasure the flexibility they want to work for two different companies they want to pick their own hours and so forth that makes collective bargaining very difficult it's also the fact that how many employers are there in these particular cases not clear that there are any you could argue that the services are employers but in many cases they're a matching kind of function and they don't actually negotiate salaries in quite the same way that they do otherwise so it's a real spin to see how you take a structure which was never good even when it could work and put it in a labor market which is much more fluid than it had ever been, at least in large numbers of industries, and hope to see that it's going to take hold. So I don't think there's going to be much of a reversal in a private unions, no matter what they put into place, although there'll be some. On the public side, I I think it's basically what's going to happen is if you have Republican governors, uh, they're going to try and slowly tamp down on this particular process. If you've got Democratic governors, what they're going to do is going to welcome it and continue. Why is this important? 
important? Well, you'll look at the places where there's strong unions and there are cases of general economic decline. It's New York State. It's California. It's Illinois. It's not Tennessee. It's not Mississippi. It's not Florida and so forth. The entire movement of population is from non, from union to non-union states, uh, from states which have strong unions to states that have right-to-work laws and so forth. What happens is unions are sufficiently inefficient that if you were told that your competitor is now going to be unionized, you don't sit there and say, how am I going to deal with this superior force? You say to yourself, they are now subject to a series of work rules and pay constraints, which will make them a less effective competitor. So the more that they unionize, the more it is pays for me to stay out of a union type situation because I can get a real comparative advantage over that. Uh, so the dominant prisoner's dilemma game is that unions face this, this. If the other guy is unionized, you don't want to be unionized. If the other guy is not unionized, you don't want to be unionized. So no matter what the shape of the competition, you'd always want to be out from the union kinds of restriction, which is why it is in quiet and confidential polls, anti-union sentiment is about 99% amongst employers. The odd cases are where somebody is unionized, can't get away from his own union, and all of a sudden he's in favor of unionization of his competitors. He'd rather have an equilibrium at the lower level than being driven out of business altogether. So I'd like to end uh, asking about the school year coming up, because, uh, well, I think most people are expecting students to be back in class. Uh, Here in California, students weren't back in class for the majority of the year, Uh, but Delta variant has, has popped up, and now we're seeing the return to mask mandates and 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 case uh, cases exploding. So my question to you: Could governors do what Reagan did if teachers unions uh, decide not to go back in, in 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 class in person? I mean, there are there are some teachers unions still that will not mandate that their teachers receive vaccines. Um, look, this is a much more difficult question because the, there is no health and safety issue for workers with respect to the strike that took place of the air controllers. In this particular case, uh, it turns out that we get such conflicting systems and signals from the CDC, which seems to have covered itself in uncertainty and disgrace, uh, that somebody could say, look, I mean, these guys are actually right. Uh, you can't go back into a classroom. Um, one of the things that's ironic about the Biden administration and everybody else is that we thought that, aha, uh-huh, if you have a vaccine, you don't need to wear a mask and you don't need to social distance. Every recent pronouncement that I have seen says there is no dispensation from the masking requirements and the social distancing requirement because you're fully vaccinated no matter what your age. And in fact, one of the things that's rather frightening about this is that the whole question of natural immunities, which may well be a huge part in this overall picture, is generally underplayed. So nobody's going to even try to figure out whether or not amongst the unvaccinated people, some have acquired um, with asymptomatic fashion uh, natural immunities and others have not. It is surely the case that most of the cases will be amongst unvaccinated people, but you never see the question of it, how many of the unvaccinated people had not been exposed uh, to a form of COVID uh, that gave them a natural immunity. So there's so much of the science that's going on that's wacky about this, and so utter much incompetence on the part of people in high places in Washington, largely clueless as far as I'm concerned, uh, that you're never sure sure what particular kind of situation is going to happen. So imagine this all of a sudden universities like Stanford and so forth and NYU and Columbia and Chicago say, uh, we're going back to Zoom, at least in part. 
Um, at that particular point, the teachers now have a reference frame that's going to make their argument a little bit stronger. You're going to have some parents who are saying, I don't want the teachers back in this classroom and so on. Uh, so that I think, in effect, that it's impossible in this particular case to figure it out. Now, does this mean that the unions are a positive contributor? No, because the things that you were referring to was that when it was pretty well established that kids were largely immune to serious consequences from COVID and did not transfer it over to adults in any serious way, uh, so that the coast seemed to be clear. Uh, at that particular point, the teachers' union still stayed out. And people like Emily Osler, I believe her name is, the excellent economist at Brown, she starts to give you some of the data and she gets reviled and abused. Uh, and so it, the, what's happened is this thing has become so politicized, starting at the top, uh, particularly with respect respect to, to Biden. I mean, he is somebody who has absolutely no grasp of what's going on, uh, yet he has to be able to set the signals politically. Uh, then there's Mr. Fauci, whom I think is surely outstate his particular welcome, um, who again, God knows what he's going to state. And then you have essentially a feeble kind of CDC, which doesn't seem to be able to get its act together in any coherent kind of way. It also doesn't help that uh, people who believe in many cases like I do, and perhaps even much more informed on these issues than I am, are announced by various kinds of people as uh, purveying misinformation so that you don't get an honest public debate about what's going on. So I think the answer is as follows. Uh, Teachers' union do not make the system any better, and it surely makes it worse. Uh, but there are many, many other factors that you have to point fingers at to figuring out how this thing were done. So in the end, what you say is uh, unions do not any good here. They do no good as far as I can see in any serious kind of discussion of education, uh, but that the public health issues are going to dominate the union issues for a very large part of the economy. And I think we have to look forward to a rather perilous, uncertain, and perhaps wholly confused uh, fall uh, particularly for school. So that's the sad story. That's the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas every week at hoover.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.